And Lord, we come here before you with humbled hearts, understanding that it is you, God, who is the ultimate mover. You are the one that transforms because you are the ultimate creator. And so as we come here before you, we ask that you would now grant us understanding and give us a heart of obedience that in hearing your word, we may not stay the same, but rather we may continue to be moved toward you, our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let us turn to the book of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And when you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's holy word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, these days a lot of people, more than I think before in the past, have been asking each other, hey, are there any good TV shows or movies that I can watch? What's there good to watch out there? Are there any good stories? And when you find a good story, you get so excited, don't you? And you, you want to share it with someone. Uh, it's like when you find a good story on your social media reels or movies or clips, you want to send it to other people saying, this was funny, this was good, let's share it. But then when you look at bigger pictures, bigger stories out there, are there any good stories out there? And I think more and more people have been saying to me and telling me this too, they've been saying, there's not really that many good stories out there. It's kind of disappointing what you see here. I see what's on the number one trending movie or watch list in some of these streaming programs. And I was like, oh, actually we have like an hour or two. And so my wife and I sat down once to watch one movie. And after, it was like the number one movie after we watched it, my wife turned to me and said, what a big fat waste of time. And I agreed with her, what a big fat waste of time. The story was terrible. And I get why some people thought this story might be good, but I think there's something to that, though. I think we long for a good story. I think when we see a good story, something inside us resonates with that story. And I think the reason why we are losing the ability to tell good stories now is because we are losing our, our ability or our grasp of reality. No longer do we have a grasp or a firmer grasp on the truth we are trying to grab at something else. And then when we try to tell the story, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't resonate with us. It's not that good. And so I've said this in the past, but I do believe it's because we've lost our grasp on reality. We've lost our grasp on what is the truth. And I think we have to go back to the old stories. We have to go back to the truth of the old stories. What does the Bible tell us about what the truth is? And as we have gone further and further of believing what the Bible says, is it any wonder that we can't get 
are endings to these stories right? For the most part, it's endings. Every time people watch, it's like, that's a decent premise. But then by the time we get to the end, it's like, what was that ending? That ending was horrible. And so I would say for the vast majority of people that are watching things like that, they come to me and their main complaint is the endings. And so that's also something that is intriguing to me to hear and to listen to when people do comment. And I think it really is because we don't have our beginnings right. When you don't have the beginnings right, you can't get the endings right. When you don't have your Genesis right, their revelation doesn't make any sense. And so we have to go back to the old stories. We have to go back to what the beginning truly is and why God did these things for us. We have to stop thinking that we're so smart. We're so smarter than, you know, we're so much smarter than the people of the past. We're so much more enlightened and educated. And if that's really the case, why are you so bitter? Why are you so upset? Why are you so angry? Why do we see so much division? It's because people just can't see what you see, apparently. And I think that is also true about the Genesis account. When people read the Genesis account now, even just the first verse, let alone the first three verses that we'll go through, when people just even read the first verse, we're taught to read the first verse and the preceding verses as if it was, as if they were opposed to science. You can't take these verses literally. I don't think there is a generation sitting in this room that has not been taught that. It, it doesn't matter if you're a Gen Zer all the way to a boomer. It doesn't matter. You've been taught. You can't take Genesis 1 literally. In fact, now we have people who are purporting to be Christian teachers that even say it was never meant to be taken literally. It's just a poem, Genesis 1 and 2, the criticism, Genesis 1 and 2 don't even match. How are we supposed to make sense of even just these two chapters? Now, we'll get to all those criticisms, hopefully, as time goes on. But one of those criticisms that we see predominantly coming to us is from the paradigm shift that apparently happened or that ensued after the Copernican Revolution. And as the name of this event suggests, apparently everyone was taught to believe in the past that the sun revolved around the earth. You've heard this before. Even if you don't know exactly what the Copernican Revolution is, it is that people thought, or we think that people have thought for the vast majority, that the sun revolved around the earth. That is until Copernicus came along or Galileo later came along, he looked in his telescope, and started to say, actually, this is not true. Only this isn't exactly true, is it? If you know your history, I mean, it's true that a lot, maybe even the vast majority of thinkers, believe that the earth was flat and the sun revolved around the sun. But the sun, not only the sun, but the entire universe revolved around the earth. But this wasn't true for everybody, even before Copernicus, even before Galileo, even almost 2,000 years before them. We know of at least a Greek philosopher named Aristarchus that suggested, and he lived from like 300 BC to 230 BC, he suggested that the earth revolved around the sun instead. 
And so what he believed to be the case is what now what we call the heliocentric model. Helio meaning sun, center, centric meaning center, so sun-centered model. And so the heliocentric model means that the earth revolves around the sun, and the sun is, is what is at the center. And we have come to believe that is opposed to the geocentric model that people have believed for a long time. And of course... The geocentric model is with Earth at the center. When you look at both the heliocentric model and the geocentric model, we know now that this is, of course, untrue. Both of them are untrue. The more that we discover what's out there is that, man, we don't know anything. And the heavenly bodies that are out there, when we see them, when we see that with our scientific um, measuring you know, telescopes and technologies that are out there, it's not even close. The sun isn't even the biggest heavenly body in the universe, let alone our galaxy. And so, furthermore, we see that, you know, the Milky Way galaxy that our solar system is in, we actually have discovered even the Milky Way galaxy has a center. What's the center? And we now dub that as the supermassive black hole. I'm sure you've heard of it. And in the supermassive black hole that's sucking up all the light and the gases of every star around it, is sucking up everything that is in this galaxy slowly and slowly expanding as far as we know. And so you can say even the center is not even the sun or the earth. It might be a supermassive black hole. But now we've discovered even further with, this, uh, with all these equipment and all these things that we can now measure. We can measure infrared light that might travel millions of light years, so they say, is that there are even planets and heavenly bodies outside of the galaxy. The reason why I bring this up is that it's something that you learn in grade school. And people still think that the Bible is teaching us from a geocentric position. When you read the Genesis account, I don't think it does that. I don't think it does that at all. There is nowhere in the Bible where you would actually see that, saying the earth is at the center of the universe. Of course, there is geocentric language that's used, but that's fine if you ask me. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I could say we still use it today with our massive gathered intellect. We still use geocentric language, things like the sun rose. When did the sun rise? Today. Today in January 21st of 2024, today, this Sunday, the sun rose at 7.15 in Teaneck, which is true, it really did. But we, we don't say the, the sun, or the earth revolved around so that, you know, this is how we are, we are perceiving. That's kind of, that's kind of foolish to, to think or to say things like that. Because from our perspective, the sun did rise. That's language. If I was talking to my friend, I would say to my friend, I'm going home. And if my friend were to call my wife, my wife would say to my friend that I was coming home. Going, coming, they're not wrong. It's just a matter of perspective. And it would be tiresome if the friend kept on correcting us. Actually, you're not going or going, coming anywhere. You're just moving from point A to point B. That's just a tiresome friend if you have somebody like that. 
references and perspectives help us understand something better. And so, yes, referencing the sunrise as the sun rising is an important reference we need to make when we are explaining things to people. Whether you think that we have a heliocentric reality or a geocentric reality, that's actually not what Genesis is saying. Genesis isn't claiming either. From Genesis 1.1, we see that what is being postulated is a theocentric reality. It's not that the earth is in the center. It's not even that the sun is in the center. And now with scientific advances in astrophysics, it's not even the supermassive black hole that's in the center of it all. And if you really think that, I think it leads to kind of a hopeless outlook on reality. Imagine that you think that the center of it all is this massive black hole that's going to eat us all up. But the ultimate reality that we are shown from the first words of the Bible is that God is at the center of it all. What we are being shown from verse 1 of the Bible is a theocentric reality. What we see then is that God, who it is God who would create the heavens and the earth. Now, just verse 1 is rife with symbolism. We could go on and on about what all of these things would have meant or would have symbolized to the people hearing this. But I think one of the main things we ought not to lose sight of is that in the context of the Bible, it's showing us that God is the creator of the heavens, meaning the supernatural world, and the earth, meaning the natural world. I know the last time I spoke, we saw this verse as time, space, and matter, and that's one way to see how God created everything that we know to be in existence. But the ancients would not have seen it that way. The ancients would have seen that God is the creator of all things. All things meaning the supernatural, what the Bible frequently means by the heavens. And heaven is actually also used as a dwelling place of God. Just looking at Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 15, it says, Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people Israel and the land you have given us as you promised an oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so the heavens or heaven can mean a variety of things. We just need to know what context the Bible is talking about. But no matter what it means exactly, we know that the heavens and the earth is used here in the broadest sense, and it means all of existence. And this is what we want to get down to. As a summary of verse 1, it means that there is nothing in existence that has been created that God did not create. And that is everything. There is nothing in existence that has been created that God did not create. And that is everything. Why is that important, though? Well, we live in a time where we might actually have the most information we've ever had in history. We know things people before couldn't ever even dreamed of knowing. Molecular structures, quarks, quasars, to heavenly bodies, to the Milky Way, outside the Milky Way. But because we think we know so much, what has happened? Because of all this information, what has happened? We have forgotten to ask questions 
and particularly the right questions. <coughs> Excuse me. We keep on asking what. What is this made out of? What are the ingredients of this food that I'm about to ingest? What is this? What is that? Give me what this thing is made out of. And that's all we think a question really is. <laughs> and we have filled our minds with this kind of information of the what's instead of asking why. Why was this made? Why was this made? Because you can have all the what's and the answer to the what's, but what you don't have then is the why. And when you don't have the why, the answer to the why, you don't know what to do with this information. Look at what people are saying is what our generations are struggling with. We have so much knowledge, we don't know what to do with it. And people are just depressed. People don't know what to do with their lives. They have all these options. They have all this knowledge. They don't know what to do with it because we just gave them the what. We've never given them the why. And what we see instead of enlightenment is a smugness, a pride. That pride leads to dread, a depression. What it really leads to is a meaninglessness. But the Word of God is what gives us meaning. The Word of God is what gives us meaning. It's not good enough to simply know that there is a God even. What we see from Genesis 1-1 is that God is creator and thereby what that implies is that he gives meaning and purpose to all creation. That means without God, there ultimately is no meaning. And people want to take out God, don't they now? In everything, in our conversations, in our workplaces, in any kind of public forum, you just want to take out God. When you keep on taking out God in that kind of environment, in every single social setting, to the family setting, to the personal setting, we'll just go, well, why can't I just give myself my own meaning? Why can't you just give yourself your own meaning? And that actually points to something, doesn't it? It means that we cannot live without meaning. We cannot live without an aim. That's what purpose means, an aim. And if you understand what aim is, you understand that purpose is given. You can't give yourself purpose, just like you cannot create yourself. When you are created, you are given a purpose. Purpose is given. But there is a movement now, people calling themselves former Christians or they call themselves deconstructionists. And they will claim that they were once of faith, but now they have deconstructed their faith, which is an interesting way to put it, if anything. But it's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. And the Bible directly contradicts the claim that they make in 1 John chapter 2, 19. 
It says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But what they're claiming when you really listen to them isn't the deconstruction of their faith, but rather what they're claiming to do is a deconstruction of God. And the ironic part is that you can't deconstruct God. I suppose you could try, but you would only end up deconstructing not just your faith, but deconstructing yourself. When you lose ultimate meaning, you lose ultimate purpose. And you can add what you think that purpose should be. And it could be as grand as you want, like saying, I, my purpose is to save the world from poverty, or even as self-centered as you want. You do you, or... It's not just treat yourself day, it's treat yourself for life. But what will happen if you choose that path? And just take the first John verse 19 and do two verses before that. In verse 17, it says this, first John chapter 2, verse 17, the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That's actually an incredibly deep verse. But what I want to get at is the deconstruction of one's faith isn't new. Perhaps the terminology is seemingly new, but the concept isn't new. What's more important to get is the outcome. The understanding that there is a passing away. You think you're deconstructing your faith, but in actuality, what we are witnessing now is a deconstruction of yourself of your families, of society. And John calls that something in the verse in between. We looked at verse 19, then we looked at verse 17. Verse 18, he calls it something. He calls that kind of action and that kind of thinking something. He calls it the Antichrist. I want you to take that notion and put it in your pocket because we'll get to it in a second. He calls that the Antichrist in 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 18. So put that in your pocket for now. We'll get to it. And I want to continue on. God is the one that gives us purpose. God is the one that created the heavens and the earth. And then we go on to verse 2. And now, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And from all of creation, we sort of see a now focusing or a zooming in on earth. And here now, we'll start to see the handiwork of God or the process of God. The earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's a lot there, but what we can broadly say is that the earth was now in a primordial state, and sort of, and this is a a very reductionist kind of example, but a reductive example, but it's sort of like God creates the Lego pieces and now it's scattered everywhere. There's no form to it, but there's more. The Bible says that the darkness was over the face of the deep. Now that is a very interesting, there's a very interesting tidbit of information that we're given because the word for deep in Hebrew is tahom, and that's where we also get the word for Tiamat, if you know your um, other 
creation epics or creation stories like the Enuma Elish. Tahom is also similar to the word Tiamat. But in the other creation story, Tiamat is a god or another god. And another god outside of Tiamat, Marduk, has to kill Tiamat for life to be birthed. So the deep or Tahom or Tiamat what it symbolizes in every creation story is chaos. And there is chaos that is before creation. And so in, other, in the other major creation story, Mar- Marduk needs to kill Tiamat for creation to be birthed. In other words, in other ancient worldviews, for order to be established, chaos needs to be violently killed. I think a lot of people still go by this kind of thinking, even though you grew up in the church. The point is that Order needed to be established, though. This is true. Order needed to be established, but this was the way that chaos needed to be killed. But this is directly contrasted with verse 2 of Genesis. What we see in Genesis, however, is different. Where there was chaos, what does God do? It says God would hover over it. Now that Hebrew word means to shake or vibrate. And if you are a physics nerd... You like string theory, you're going to love that, right? You're going to love that word. But uh, there is one more time that this word to shake or vibrate or to hover is used in the Torah. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 32, 11. And this is what uh, verse 11 says. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. So the word flutter, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. So you can now picture an eagle over its nest, fluttering over so that the eagle can get her eaglets prepared. Prepared for what? Prepared for life. Prepared for flight. And in that manner, it shows In this verse in Deuteronomy, how God prepares his people through the hovering, through the vibrating. And put that in context, God prepares what is seemingly in disarray. What we see as chaos, it's God who starts to prepare. And he's preparing to what? He's preparing to put them all into order. What this shows us is that all movement in creation is from God. There are no parts that move on its own. He is the grand designer and he is the master builder. What is initially without form and what is void, he will start to bring into form and fullness. And there's further significance to this. In ancient folklore, there is a dichotomy from light and darkness, form and formlessness, chaos and order, just like we see here. However, the key difference we see isn't the division between the two parts. The key difference is where God stands. In every other epic or creation story or even ideology, the champion or their God stands on one side. Chaos is something that threatens their God or their champion. But in Genesis The key difference is that God, the true God, doesn't have any equal. Chaos doesn't equal God. It's not something that is uh, equal power against God. It's not yin and yang at all. 
God is God over all. He is still God in the chaos, but he is a God that brings chaos into order. He stands above it all. That's the true God that we see here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. He is God through it all. Before order and before chaos, before anything at all, he is God. And what we are being shown here then is the character of God. God is a God who brings things into order because that's his character. This is what Paul means when he says in 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. With God, chaos and disorder give way to order and peace. It's quite significant then when we say to one another, the peace of God be with you, what we are wishing and what we are praying and what we are saying to each other is may God's order be in your life. And the first act of this order that he presents to us is going to be in verse three. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. How does then God order reality? God orders reality through his word. God said. When God spoke, we are talking about his irresistible will coming into effect. God's word, the power which he brings all things into existence, which was first not, is what reality is. God's word is the power which brings into existence which was first not. God speaking here is the divine imperative that we must pay attention to and we must pay attention to not only the the fact that God brings things to order, but what then did he bring out first? What did he bring out first? He said, let there be light. Light is the first and light symbolizes life. Well, it's first only chaos and darkness he brings forth light and thereby what we understand is God is the source of light. The sun isn't the source of light. The sun is created actually on day four. It can't be the source of light. And now we know that even through our scientific findings perhaps, but we now know that even before the advent of this telescope and scientific equipment, God already showed us in his word that the sun isn't the source of light. God is the source of light. There's no one that really knew that. People used to worship the sun. You do yoga, you worship the sun, right? Everybody worships the sun as the first source of light, except people who had the word understood that there was a source of light greater than the sun. And we saw that in Genesis 1, 3. No matter how great the heavenly body is, we don't worship it because it is not the source. God is the source. This is why the people of God would not worship the sun. No matter how awesome they thought it was, they didn't worship the sun. Almost every ancient religion, that means almost every ancient thought, process, ideology, what people really dedicated themselves to had a deification of the sun, but not God's people. We don't worship the sun. We don't bow down to the sun. Because I don't care if you call it exercise, there is no veneration above the sun or of the sun that is above its creator. And if we are to bow, we bow, as a people of God, we bow understanding 
that we only really bow or ultimately bow to the one who created it all. But you flip this, you flip this around. When you start to worship the creation rather than the creator, we are inverting this process. And when we invert the process, we invert it first by going backwards from verse three. We go backwards from verse three. We invert the process by ignoring God's word. Then we slowly become more and more formless, lose our purpose. Purpose means aim. And inside ourselves, we have built, we have a built-in aim. We have a built-in purpose for our creator. And when you lose that, when you disregard that, when you put that aside, when you understand our purpose is to point to God, worship God, not only we become less and less like the creation we were meant to be, we get further and further away from the creation, we get further and further away then from light. When he was the source. He is the source of creation, he is the source of life. What that also means is he is the one that sustains all creation. He is the source of life, he sustains life. John understood this. He would say this in John chapter one, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is. Here he's going to expound, starting from verse 2, Genesis 1, 2, 3. Listen, he says, he was with God in the beginning. Remember it says, in the beginning was God. Now we're talking about Jesus Christ. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He is clarifying that Jesus was with God, and he is creator He is God. And then verse four, it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Now we see where Jesus fits into all of this. Jesus is the word, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus is God. Jesus was with God in the beginning, meaning Jesus is not made. He is not a creation. He is the creator, verified in verse 3 of John. And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And here we see Genesis 1-3 expounded again in John 1-4. In Jesus Christ was life, and life was the light of all mankind. God created the light in this universe because he is the source. In other words, God is the ultimate light. God is the source of life. And we've read this earlier today, but in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Here, John starts to make the connection for us between light and darkness and righteousness and sin. And so here's the rub. We didn't love the light. As crazy as that might seem, we know it to be true because look at our lives. We don't want things to be illumined in our lives. Imagine I could take one person and I could illumine inside every single thought process you've had, every single deed that you did, and then we illumine that, we project that out. Is that what you want? Of course not. We love instead the darkness, and thereby we love death, the opposite of light, the opposite of life. What does Genesis 1, 1 to 3 teach us? It teaches us that not only is God the agent or the mover, the actor, right? 
But when someone moves or acts, it shows you their character. God is the God who creates, who prepares and orders, and who speaks. And we know who God is by what he has revealed about himself because of what he said, because of his word, and his word is Jesus Christ. We know who God is because of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus Christ says in John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict. He says it, light has come into the world. That means he, the light, the life, the source of all creation has come into the world. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Even though light would enter the room, we love darkness that as light would enter the room, you would scatter like cockroaches would scatter when you would turn on the lights. I don't know if you've lived that kind of life growing up, but I did. My mom is here, so she can attest to it. My sister is also here. When we turn on the lights in our apartment in Elmer's Queens, the roaches would scatter. And there would be this one roach sometimes that would freeze because it was too far from the corner. That roach is gone. It's dead. It's kaput. That's the roach that we get to kill, right? You love the darkness so much that even though the light would come, you would scatter to the corners. You would scatter to whatever dark corner you could find. And that's the true reality of our situation, isn't it? It's sad, but it's true. We hated the source so much. We don't want to believe God is the source of light. And we hated light. And as unreasonable and irrational as it may seem to love darkness and chaos more than light and order, that is the current state that we are in. But here the Bible is showing us something. It was Jesus Christ, the light of the world, that then enters into the world to come to save and seek the lost. In Hebrews chapter 1, 2 to 3, let me remind you what it says. It says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Again, this is Genesis 1. This is John verse, uh, chapter 1. And it says in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And then it continues What's the point of Jesus being the light coming into the world? He says this in verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why are the things that are happening happening today? Why is there so much confusion? Why is there so much bitterness? Why is there so much division? Don't you see it's going into disarray, disorder, because we hate the light. And the more you hate the light, the more you try to scatter into the darkness, the more we see chaos. And we need to get things back into order. We need to stop hating the light and loving the darkness, dooming our souls and effectively destroying our lives. 
And it's Christ who offers the only solution to the path of inevitable destruction and deconstruction, a decreation, if you will, a pulling apart of the self and the soul. It's Christ who offers the only solution. I want to end with this. I want to end with a warning and a rebuke that has been administered five times in the New Testament, in each one of the Gospels and once in Acts by Paul. In each one of the Gospels, it's from Jesus or in reference to what Jesus is saying. It's from Isaiah chapter 6. It's a little bit long, so you can turn with me if you'd like, but it's from Isaiah chapter 6 from verses 8 and on. Isaiah is there with the, the Lord. The Lord reveals himself. He's like, whom shall I send? He's like, here I am, I'll go, right? Send me, and says that in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. And this is it. This is what has been repeated five times. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. People want to leave God. They don't want the order of God. What happens then? People think they can be their own God. People think, I can order myself. And so we don't know the order or the law or the light of God. And we live our own way. What happens? We see a deconstruction, not of people's faith, of their souls, you see a decreation happening. This is exactly what we are witnessing in the world today. The more we leave God and we close our ears to his word, the more we see destruction and utter ruin, a ravaging of our lives come into our wake. And then when we want to hear the word of God, uh-uh. Our ears are closed. That's what the word of God says. This is what Jesus says. He repeats Isaiah 6 in all four of the gospels. This is what Paul says at the end of Acts. He repeats this. Because even if you're like, actually, I, I want order again, you can't have order again. That's not how it works. We cannot create ourselves as much as we cannot put things back into order. We are not the movers. We are not the actors what we need to understand from verses 1 to 3 in Genesis is God is the mover. He is the creator. He is the one that puts things into order. So if we want to do that, what we first need to do is understand that we must hear 
the word of God. We must be able to listen to the word of God. And the warning is this. There is a time to hear the word of God. There is a time. And if you can hear the word of God now, if you can hear the word of God that is being spoken, the time is to repent. The time is to repent and turn to Christ, the light, the light of God, so that you can be healed, so that you can be reordered in your life. And that's the testimony of those that are in Christ, is it not? If you are in Christ, you understand that your life is a life of repentance. Repentance means a reordering. It's a turning back. And God is the one, as he lets you hear his word, that brings you back more and more to order. We call that sanctification. But this is what the Lord does in our lives. And so there is a warning that we must understand. When you see the word, a warning follows. Because when you do not listen to the word, there is something, there's a consequence that happens. And so the warning is this. There is a time to hear the word. And if you could hear the word, then praise the Lord for his mercy. Because he's the one that has opened your ears. He's the one that actually gives light into your eyes. And when he gives light into your eyes, it illumines your whole body. And that's what we do here in this church. We are a people of repentance. We are a people that reorder our lives according to his word by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's the one that prepares his people and we worship him for that. It truly is a glorious thing to sit at his feet and listen to his word and understand that it is God who gives us this privilege, the strength, the power to do as he commands. That's why I think we should sing with all of our hearts. When we gather, there should be an elation of our spirits. If you truly understand what is happening and what has happened and how God takes us out of our current path to destruction and brings us into a light that heals, how can we not praise him? What can keep us from singing his praises, from worshiping the true God? He truly is gracious. He truly is a God of mercy. And we can see that he does love his people because he has opened to us our ears, our eyes, and he has given us life. So let us praise the Lord for what he has done by giving us his holy word and let us follow it with all that we have as we follow him in obedience. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks for the word that you give us, the word that gives us light and life, the word that is Jesus Christ. Forgive us of the times where we have thought that we could order our own selves, that we could give ourselves our own purpose and meaning whereby we just brought upon ourselves more further destruction, chaos, a deconstruction, a decreation. Forgive us of our pride and give us back a humble heart, a humble heart of repentance that we may follow you now all our days, worshiping you for your mercy, 
for your grace over our lives. And so we thank you, God. And we ask, God, that you would be with each and every one of us, especially our church, that we may be a church symbolizing, signifying, and living out the truth of your word all the days of our lives. Let's take this time to pray. And perhaps there is something, I'm sure there is something, where you have not given over to the Lord, where even the Holy Spirit will convict you, you are loving the darkness more than the light here. And give it to the Lord. Ask for mercy. Ask for forgiveness. Ask God to reorder your life again according to his word. And may the Lord be gracious to you as you pray in repentance to him. Let's pray.